Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Ah, well, thanks, guys, and thanks for having me this evening to share with you guys. If uh, you haven't, if we haven't met, my name's Matt. And uh, together with my wife, Brittany, we're the missions and justice pastors uh, at the Granary Church, though Britt is currently on maternity leave. And uh, just adding to, uh, yeah, you can give that a cheer. Thank you. I feel like I played some part in that as well. So thanks, Jed. Um, just adding uh, to what Jake was saying about those of you studying for your exams, it's a big time. It's a big time. But one thing I always remind myself, and I tried really hard in my exams too, is that, and you will have had it said over and over again, but it bears repeating over and over again, that it is not the end of the world. And that the things that you want to do in your life and that God may be calling you to do in your life, he will find a way to do that. And I think you should absolutely give everything to your studies and to the results that you're seeking, but do also know that there are many ways into the things that you love and have a passion for. And even practically, as someone on the other side of it, I saw so many of my friends who didn't quite get into the thing they wanted to at the beginning, but through studying other courses, transferred in, found their ways into careers, changed careers and found that path for themselves. But I know it can feel very intimidating at the time, but I hope that you guys feel really loved and supported and not overly anxious about it as you give it your best. So good luck with your studies and your HSC exams. So um, tonight I am preaching to conclude the series that we've been on as the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the Lord's Prayer in several versions of the Bible ends with a stirring doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And a doxology is an expression of praise to God, a way for us to express our love, our thankfulness and awe at who God is and what he has done. And in this particular doxology, we find the perfect bookend to the Lord's Prayer given to us by Jesus. It starts, of course, with Jesus teaching us to set our hearts and mind on our Father who's in heaven and finishes with this outpouring of praise to the one who is all-powerful, glorious and ruling above all things. And throughout this series, we've sought to study and apply the words of the Lord's Prayer very practically to our lives and our relationship with God, understanding our our identity as children of a loving Father who calls us, provides for us our daily bread, forgives us and asks us that we forgive others and leads us out of our temptations. But as we finish our series, I want to use the power of this doxology tonight to help us confront one of the biggest challenges we face as individuals and as society today which is the increasing polarization and fear that seems to be permeating every part of our lives together in this modern day and age. I'm talking about the tension that enters the room when the dinner conversation with friends turns to matters on politics, race, religion or sexuality. The heated comment sections under our Facebook posts, there's a few of those going around at the moment. The deliberate distancing from that family member at the wedding whose views that you really cannot stand. And of course, really what is the tragedy unfolding before us when it comes to our upcoming referendum. We're a moment that was intended to promote reconciliation, 
greater listening and understanding has instead descended into one of the most troubling times we've faced as a nation in recent decades. And rather than preaching directly on the referendum itself, knowing that there is a plurality of views in our church, which is a good thing as a diverse church with diverse views, what we're going to explore today are some of the deeper drivers behind why it is we seem to fall into such sharp camps of divisions, increasingly so. The point is that whether such anecdotes of strains dinner conversations or um, testy Facebook posts uh, seem to be your experience of this increasing polarization, almost all of us can describe the feelings of this fracturing in our own lives and the heartbreak and pain that can come with experiencing these strange relationships with those around us and oftentimes those that we love. And given how painful it is, it feels like an incredibly sensitive topic to even begin to address, and yet it is vital that we try. Why? Because we cannot go on like this. There has to be a way out. And the church must be an example to the wider society of how we can handle our differences better and not just tolerate one another, but truly flourish together in loving community. Jesus told his followers to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. And I truly believe that in this day and age, in this cultural moment, one of the strongest witnesses we can bear to a divided and fracturing society around us is simply to get on a bit better with each other and to show others how to get on better with each other and to be gracious and to be loving and to be that little bit more open-minded when we encounter difference. And so to help us do this, there are three steps that we can take that we're going to look at together today. First of all, we need to really understand the times that we're in so we can better discern what to do about it. We need to understand what has led to this specific cultural moment of increasing polarization and fear. Second, we need to do the hard internal work towards getting our own thinking straight, which starts with reorientating our hearts and minds on God's glory and God's rule over all things. And this is exactly what the Lord's Prayer is intended to do for us, to get our minds set on Him. And then we need to get to work at becoming bridge builders, peacemakers and relationship men menders by learning better ways for responding to those who are different to us. So, three simple steps. Okay, are you ready? Should be easy, right? Easy topic. Let's see how we go. So first of all, understanding what has led to this cultural moment of increasing polarization and fear. And I guess the simple way to answer that would be to say, it's sin. It's man's brokenness. You know, enmity, distrust and separation between people, tribes, nations has been a feature of mankind since the beginning and can be seen as the direct result of our original sin, where, of course, as people, we turned our back on God's plans for us to live together in peace and harmony under his authority in order to choose our own way to try and set the rules ourselves. And look how that's playing out. And while it wouldn't be wrong to say that, you know, okay, it's because of original sin, the scriptures also encourage us specifically to understand the times that we're in. That is to have an appreciation for what has shaped and is shaping our lives at this moment right now. And not only to be aware of it, but to make sound decisions and to take action in light of it. This well-known saying to understand the times we're in comes from 1 Chronicles where we find a reference to this group of the Israelites called the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times and therefore knew what Israel should do. And if we are understanding of what is happening right now, we will know that the polarization and fear we are experiencing today as a society, particularly in the West, has a distinctly new and sharper edge to it, doesn't it? 
feels different. So how do we get here? Well, strap in for a bit of a, a, a tour through modern history and uh, we might have a little look at, at why it is that we're in this state that we're in. When I was only one year old back in 1989, several important things happened. There was the Newcastle earthquake. Shout out if you experienced that. Okay, not so many here tonight. <laughs> there was uh, Taylor Swift was born. Shout out if you're a Swifty. Yeah. Thank you. I did that this morning and literally no one shouted out. <laughs> and then there was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it was perhaps that final event which would go on to leave the biggest mark on history, though some Swifties might disagree. Because when the Berlin Wall fell, experts and politicians alike claimed that the forces of Western liberal democracy, freedom and progress, now having conquered secular communism, would sweep throughout the world. And that for the next decade of my childhood, they appeared to be largely right. Because between my first birthday and my fifth birthday, the number of democracies worldwide doubled from uh, about 40 to more than 80. And with this rise in democracy, the world also saw a remarkable spreading of peace and prosperity. The theory behind this was that democratic governments built around open markets and more interconnected globalized trade are less likely to go to war with each other and more likely to promote shared, sustained economic growth amongst their citizens. This was also supported by the strongly connected capitalist peace theory, which I learned about uh, at the University of Sydney, called the Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention, which stated that no two countries that both have a McDonald's have ever fought or will ever fight in a war against each other. Because it was about the fact that we were interconnected, right? And that we were becoming more connected and we we're kind of moving forward into this kind of utopian vision. For those like myself who work in the humanitarian sector, we know that this period throughout the 90s and the early 2000s saw some of the greatest advancements in international development. The number of children dying before their fifth birthdays dropped by 41%. And more than a billion people were lifted out of extreme poverty, the worst forms of poverty, in just over a decade in fact, academics were so convinced as to this triumph of Western liberal democracy over all forms of other government that one particularly famous political scientist in the United States, Francis Fukuyama, declared that we had effectively reached the end of history. By which he meant that as humanity, we had discovered, even with its flaws, the best form of political organisation was to be found in Western liberal democracies. And that it was only a matter of time until all nations followed, uh, followed in this path and trajectory. But as we know, that isn't what happened. Instead, several major disruptions have taken place in the last 20 or so years that have led us up to this moment of increasing fear and anxiety. The first came in the form of two passenger jet planes being slammed into the heart of the United States seat of economic and cultural power. That was the World Trade Center attacks in New York City. And these were followed by further attacks in Bali, which affected a lot of Australians, London, France, and Spain. These were in the early 2000s. And these attacks were a sharp wake-up call to the West a decade after the fall of the Berlin wall that its progress and dominance was neither accepted by all nor somehow untouchable. Then we had a global financial crisis that was caused by the bursting of the US housing market bubble. What had happened is that financial managers and the large institutions were keen to give away all of these loans in hope that they would kind of reap the interest repayments back on them. And a greedy public was also um, willing to kind of take out debts that were much bigger than they could afford. And the risk that was building up in this financial system was just being shifted around and no one was taking responsibility for it until it all collapsed in on itself. 
And with this financial collapse, it spread like a contagion throughout the world's markets and banking systems, wiping trillions from the global economy. And, you know, billions, trillions, banking system collapses, it can be hard to get your head around. But particularly if you're younger, ask some of your parents, older generations, what happened to their superannuation funds? What happened to their investments? People lost so much money. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. It was one of the worst economic slowdowns since the Great Depression and Recession in the 1930s. Inequality soared as millions of people lost their jobs, their homes, and their savings. And the response of governments at the time, particularly in the US, was to then go and bail out the very banks and financial institutions that had caused this problem. Well, you can imagine what happened then. People were not happy because they saw this as a huge injustice. These guys are the ones who caused this problem, they thought to themselves. And so trust in government and institutions started to erode. You see the trajectory that we're on here? Also, what happened at the time is that trust uh, and confidence in the United States as this effective hegemonic power that was bringing more peace and development and stability also started to erode because they had been the ones to start and spread this virus around the rest of the world. This was soon followed by waves of migration. Firstly, due to the ongoing economic shockwaves sent out by the global financial crisis and the fact that through globalization, people around the world had been looking and seeing how much better life was in the West and considering their own circumstances and wanting to leave and find that safety and find that better life, which is an understandable goal. This was then exacerbated by a refugee crisis set off as a result of the Syrian war and the terror of the Islamic State throughout the Middle East. And we remember seeing caravans of thousands of Syrian refugees literally walking through the European countryside trying to find a country that would accept them that they could settle into. If this wasn't enough, we were just about to round the corner into a global pandemic. Borders went up. Lockdowns were imposed. Social distancing was created in ways far more profound and damaging than simply having to stand 1.5 metres apart. Governments were caught having to ad lib, taking much greater roles in our lives than either they or us were really comfortable with, leading in many cases to deep frustration and resentment. Add to that an ever-growing anxiety over the future of our climate, particularly amongst younger generations, a modern reckoning on sexual violence and patriarchal power through the Me Too movement, the eruption of deep historical racial trauma and pain in the Black Lives Matter movement, the violent invasion of Ukraine by Russia carried out in the middle of Europe, a continent who thought that they'd seen away with wars after the two great world wars of the last century, and the increasing geopolitical rivalry between China and the United States. When you consider all of this, guys, it's no wonder that what you're left with is a tinderbox or perhaps a powder keg of uncertainty and fear that it is just waiting to go off. Such feelings of frustration, powerlessness and loss of belonging make us vulnerable to the us versus them stories, which are at the heart of our increasing polarization. This underlying anxiety that we are now feeling all the time has fueled a huge swing towards what is known in political science as grievance-based politics, which seeks to actually use polarization as a deliberate tactic to whip up and mobilize a voting base. Where conventional party politics is supposed to be about the healthy competition of ideas and trying to collectively solve the problems we face as a society in order to live the good life together, 
Grievance politics is based on resentment and fueling and funneling and flaming negative emotions such as fear or anger. On the right side of politics, grievance politics can sound like this. Have you lost your job? Do you not like the way that society is changing around you? Do you feel like your values are under attack? It's because of them. Migrants, progressives, the woke, the elites. In a recent speech to a crowd of his supporters, one US presidential candidate who's currently facing some legal difficulties said the following. In 2016, I said, I am your voice. Today I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those of you who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. On the left, grievance politics can sound like this. Your rent is way too high. Your future is doomed because of a lack of action on climate change. Do you feel like you're not being allowed to express yourself how you see fit? It's because of them, the wealthy, the conservatives, the boomers. And of course, all of this is being exacerbated by social media whose algorithms we know reward outrage. And how do we know this? Because disgruntled staff, some of the ones who founded these companies in the first place from these organizations have told us this. They reward outrage because outrage drives more views, more clicks, more interaction. They don't care if what's happening on their platform is outrage. They just want that interaction because that's, that's more eyeballs, that's more data being collected, that's more uh, airtime that can be sold to advertisers. So they are fueling and profiting from an outrage culture that is created by grievance-based politics. And even, you know, potentially more dangerous on top of this is the rampant rise in the deliberate use of misinformation and disinformation by bad faith actors on both sides. Studies have been done about the level of disinformation that was spread particularly throughout the United States during the pandemic. And uh, they looked at disinformation that was particularly affecting and targeted towards white evangelical Christians. Who do you think that they found was spreading some of that disinformation? Anyone want to take a guess? It was Russia. And they were doing that because of a principle called asymmetrical warfare. Russia knows that it can't compete toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States militarily. But having seen these cracks and these divisions starting to open up in some of these Western liberal democracies, countries like Russia, Russia and China have found a weak spot. And so they are just pouring fuel into those weak spots. Right now, we already know China is getting incredibly involved in the United States election through such disinformation. And who do you think that they might like to see win? The leader that might potentially bring even more chaos and confusion. So this is not a political statement by me as to oh, who should be voted for on president. It's just kind of unveiling and uncovering this moment that we live in, these forces that are driving this polarization. You know, we should be so careful with what we're consuming and how we engage in these spaces. So these are the times that we live in. It's incredibly heavy. It's extremely sobering and worrying. But like the sons of Issachar, knowing the times can help us to respond to them with wise discernment and sound judgment. So let us turn to what we can do in response. And the first thing, like I mentioned at the outset, is to get our own thinking straight by reorientating our hearts and minds on God's glory and his rule over all things. To do this, we need to 
break out of our online echo chambers, out of our culture wars, out of our pride and contempt for those we think of as different to ourselves, and to set our eyes on God above. I said at the beginning that I believe the doxology found at the end of the Lord's Prayer has the power to help us overcome the forces of polarization and division we face. Why is this? Well, there's two reasons. First is that by declaring that the kingdom, the power, and the glory belong to God, we are recognizing and placing God in his rightful place, that he is the creator of all things, that he is sovereign, and that nothing can happen without his knowledge or presence. Now that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent may be a terrifying thing to some, particularly if you don't know God or you've had a bad experience of church or religion or Christians. Because if we don't also understand that God is fundamentally for us, then it can be scary to think that he's always there kind of looking at us. And and it might not be clear why putting him above all other things actually helps to fix some of these problems. The heart of the covenant that we find throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament is God's redemptive promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And it should not surprise us that one of the biblical names for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. As a result of this, we are to attribute all glory and honor to God alone. He is the God who draws near and is close and present at hand because he loves us. And when we fail to do this by either consciously or unconsciously trading the rightful position of our loving God for what Timothy Keller calls counterfeit gods, whom we instead go looking to for validation, power, security, belonging, pleasure, retribution, the result is disastrous because these counterfeit gods cannot give us what our hearts ultimately desire and long for and need. And so they will only leave us feeling more lost, more alone, greater disenchantment and more resentful. If we don't feel loved, we struggle to love others. If we feel judged, we're more likely to judge others. If we're anxious about our lives, our money and our future, we'll project that anxiety onto others. Can you see why it's so important for us to begin to address this moment of increasing polarization and fear that we make sure our own hearts and minds are turned to God's loving power and his glory over all things? The second way this doxology can help us to get our hearts and minds straight is that when we say now and forever, amen, we are reminding ourselves that these truths are eternal. Societal shifts and upheavals like the ones we've just discussed together that have led us to this moment of polarization come and go. They come and go. But God's reign is not a temporal phenomenon or a moment in time, but an eternal truth and reality. What he says he will do, he will do. What he speaks over our life in the form of blessing, value, love, and purpose is real. It's not fake news. It's not disinformation. And so it is a firm foundation, and the Bible says, a rock on which we can stand to weather the most divisive of times and circumstances we might face. We have to keep God above all, and that is the beauty and reminder of this doxology. So now that we've sought to understand the times that we're in and to ensure that God is on the right position in our lives, now we need to look out and across to the other people in the room and in our lives. And we need to become and get to work at being these bridge builders and peacemakers in this polarizing world that Jesus calls us to be. And we can do this by examining how we respond to those whose opinions or actions are different to ours and trying to learn a better way of engaging with difference.
When Britt and I were preparing to live and work overseas in Nepal, we were sent to do a cross-cultural training school. Why were we sent to do this? Well, because when you're going overseas, you know that you will encounter difference, different cultures, different people, different languages. You know that people have had a different experience to you. And so in order to kind of um, survive in that and be able to kind of even get some food at the shop and not get confused about what people are doing or thinking, you need some training and some preparation. And so they gave it to us and they gave us a three-step framework for navigating differences successfully. But as it was unpacked to us, and as I've reflected on that uh, teaching that we got about 15 years ago now, I've realized that it's so applicable to difference in any shape and kind. The differences I have and experience between myself and my wife, my kids, my family, friends, coworkers. Because just because we might share a roof together or live in the same community, go to the same church, it doesn't mean there isn't a world of difference between some of us. Of course there is. We're all made up of different stories and experiences that shape our worldviews and how we negotiate this thing called life together. And the problem isn't diversity itself. God loves diversity. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. His Psalms talk about praise coming up in all different languages from every corner of the globe. And in Revelation chapter 7, we see as the final gathering of God's people, every nation, tribe and tongue gathered together praising him. So the problem isn't that there are differences in our world and amongst God's creation, but rather how we handle and negotiate those differences. The first step that we were taught in this three-step framework around managing difference was to exit our world in order to enter that of another's. Exit to enter. This is the same concept behind the idiom to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It is an invitation to stop and recognize that the person in front of me inhabits a very different world to my own that is going to be based on their unique experiences and perspectives. And if I'm going to love them like God loves them, I'm going to need to slow down and seek to understand where it is they're coming from. What's driving this behavior? What's driving this thinking? What's driving what they're saying? Because so often when we encounter difference, the temptation to, is to do what? It's to judge. Are they like me or not? Are they cool or weird? Are they worthy of my time or best moved on from? Alike? or an unfollow, powerful or insignificant, admirable or contemptible, are they right or are they wrong? And instead of moving down this freeway um, towards judgment, we need to take an off ramp. We need to tap the brakes a little bit. And the way that we do that is to go into the next step, which is to approach difference with fascination and curiosity, to ask with genuine care and inquisitiveness why does this person or group of people think that way or say those things or act in that certain way? What makes them do that? What makes them them? And this is not easy. Just ask my in-laws. I've ruined a few dinner parties over the years, particularly when I was younger, not being able to quite negotiate or understand or handle some of the differences that I encountered when I moved into this new family and some of their different views. I love them though a lot. And uh, when we go through this step of fascination and curiosity, there's also a sub-step, which is to pray and stop and pray and say, God, help me. Not God, help me with these people, but God, help me. Help me suspend my judgment for long enough to understand this person who you love and who you made. 
By now, having sought to exit our world in order to enter another's, applying the practice of adopting fascination and curiosity to differences instead of rushing to judgment and fear, it's more likely than not that we've actually made a new friend, found some alignment on shared values we didn't realize we had before, or at least come to a position of being able to understand the differences between us, even if we don't agree. Someone that I've had the pleasure of getting to know is a man called Tim Dixon. And Tim is a very sharp thinker. He's a very strong Christian. And he worked for Kevin Rudd as his speechwriter when Kevin Rudd was prime minister back in 2007. And uh, he worked with Kevin Rudd for a while. But as it turns out, Kevin Rudd's colleagues don't seem to be able to stand him for more than a couple of years and either chuck him out of government or move on to other jobs. And Tim Dixon went uh, overseas and uh, worked in the UK where he was friends with another uh, British parliamentarian, a wonderful lady who served her community, who loved others, who had a brilliant vision uh, for what the community and the country could become. And one day she was shot at a community event by someone who disagreed with her. And this really rocked Tim and his friends and colleagues to the core. And so they started a, an organization called More in Common, which conducts incredibly deep research into understanding exactly this, that we have more in common than we realize. And their advice now informs governments. It's often covered regularly in outlets like the BBC and the New York Times. They're doing a lot of studies on this. One of the number one things they found is this, that what we see on the outrage ends of the spectrum, both left or right, for lack of a better term. It's a small group of our population. It's actually a really small minority of people. And the rest of us are in what they have called the exhausted middle. Now, there's differences in the exhausted middle. We vote different ways, might think different ways about certain policies. But it's this kind of sense that there is this exhaustion in the middle from the outrage on either side. And that's actually good news because it means there is far more in common that we share than what we sometimes are led to believe when we turn on the TV or go on a social media and it's like, whoa, baby, we have more in common. So then we go to the third step, if we need to, which is to protest and redeem because sometimes we need to take a stand. Sometimes there are things that are not okay, things that are said or things that are done, and we need to protest, to raise our voice, to draw a line, to seek change. But it is important that as Christians, we always seek to keep God's redemptive plans and purposes before us in our cries for justice. If we are seeking to oppose something, we should also have a vision for what it is we are seeking to build up, restore, or recover in its place. It's not enough to simply stand against, we also have to stand for something. Enter and exit, fascination and curiosity, protest and redeem. And of course, you may have realized by now that there is deep biblical wisdom behind this model. Exit and enter. Who do we know as Christians who has exited and entered? This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. As Christians, we know it was Jesus who stepped down from his rightful position of power, comfort, and security. And rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? In order that we might be saved, reconciled, redeemed. Fascination and curiosity. This is Paul on his missionary journeys throughout the churches of uh, foreign cities, where instead of going in and jumping on his soapbox, he seeks to understand the culture and understand the city that he's come to reach and what's going on there. I love the way that it renders uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23 in the message version, 
where he talks about becoming everything to all people, the religious, non-religious, moralists, loose livers, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. Now, he says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. We've talked about that this evening. But I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. Protest and redeem. Well, this is Amos demanding that justice rolls down like a river and a mighty stream when there are Israelites profiting off the back of exploiting the poor. This is Isaiah calling for true worship that isn't just looking like a religious person, but actually breaking chains of injustice. This is Moses demanding to Pharaoh, let my people go. There is times for protest and redemption. We must ask ourselves, what might it look like if we sought to apply these steps in our own lives? What might it look like? Already this evening, I'm sure that there are people that you've thought of that have come to mind where there are these real struggles of difference. Or maybe you've thought about those issues that really get you hot under the collar and you don't even sometimes know why. But, you know, when you see that on Facebook, man, you are fired up. How can we apply these steps so that we can become, as Jesus calls us to be, peacemakers, peacemakers in a divided world? What might it look like for the church, for our church, if in a world becoming more fearful, more anxious and divided, we took seriously these teachings to become reconcilers, to shine Jesus' light through these acts of reconciliation and peacemaking. I'm going to finish with this because we recently went through the process of re-envisaging as a church what our future might look like. It can be a funny thing to think of churches doing strategic plans because obviously we bring ourselves under God's guidance and direction, but every good grouping of people that's out to do something in the world needs a plan, a sense of where you're going and how you're going to get there. And in our church, we've always had the same vision and purpose, which is to bring heaven on earth and to see God's kingdom come within our own hearts, amongst ourselves as a community and beyond our four walls into the world. I love our church's vision and purpose. It's why um, I'm so passionate about being able to serve here and be a part of this church. And as we kind of re-envisage what the next um, 5, 10, 15 years could look like and the ministries that needed to be started and the areas that needed attention, three things came up within these themes of um, within, among and beyond. Within was about discipleship, was about helping the people of our church uh, in their own spiritual journeys, to practice the spiritual disciplines, to get into what the Bible has to say, to get that biblical wisdom throughout their lives. Um, Beyond was about mission, going out into the world locally, uh, globally, bringing change beyond the four walls of the church. And the third one was among, which is between us. And uh, we realized together as a church, and when I say as a church, you know, we surveyed everyone in the church. We had um, envisaging nights here where people came from all different ministries and demographics of the church to feed into these plans. What we realized was this, that one of the biggest things that stands in our way or threatens our future as a church is the potential for division among, and that we need to learn how to become uh, those who love like Christ did so that we can coexist in unity. Doesn't mean we have to become the same. Doesn't mean we have to become homogenous, but we need to be unified even in our differences. So this is something our church takes very seriously and wants to work on and journey on together. And I think that if we do that, not only is it going to be good for us, it's going to be an incredible witness to those around us, an incredible witness. So how about we finish by praying that we can become this reconciling force in our world and in our nation 
and shine Jesus' light into these cracks of polarization. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your wisdom and your love for us, that you are the God who draws near and you are the God who is above all and through all. And we thank you, Lord God, and we want to put you in your rightful place, Father God, and get our own thinking straight. And God, I pray for people tonight who are resonating with this sense of division, of increasing fear, but don't really know what it means uh, to see you on the throne or how that could help, Lord. That might even be confusing or troubling, depending on the experiences that they've had of you, Father God. So I pray, Lord God, that uh, your Holy Spirit would be with them and near to them and kind to them, Lord God, as they seek to understand and search you out for hope in the midst of their own fears and uncertainties, Father God. And I pray that together as a church, Lord God, we would be reaching out and loving others and reaching into homes and workplaces and schools and communities and a nation and a world which is increasingly struggling with these fears and these uncertainties. Lord, there is so much to be concerned about. There are real issues to be very concerned about. And yet we know in your scriptures, it says, Lord God, that you, uh, if we come to you with our anxieties, there is a peace that surpasses all understanding available to us. So Father God, I pray for everyone here tonight in this room, Lord, for your peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of our anxieties and our fear. And I know you long to see us lifted up, restored, and sent out as peacemakers into this broken world. So would you do that, Lord, and would we be open to it, God? Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.